Welcome, Redeemer family and friends. Uh, my name is Israel Martinez, and I love having the opportunity to serve here as your lead pastor. Thank you for being with us today, this Easter uh, Sunday. And so if you are a guest, you are dearly welcomed, and we want you to feel dearly loved and accepted here today. And so uh, know, again, that us as Redeemer Church, we're excited to get to know you and to show you Christ's love with our actions and our uh, words today and with our interactions with you. So today, we are going to be in John 2, 13 through 22. So if you have a Bible, if you have a device, open it, turn it on. And today, again, we're going to be in John 2, 13 through 22. And we are going to learn that the true temple had a purpose to demonstrate God's standard of holiness, declare the gospel, and produce true belief. You see, because... Um, in the Old Testament, the temple served as a central place of worship for the Israelites, where they would come and offer sacrifices and perform these religious ceremonies. And the temple was designed to reflect God's holiness and majesty and to, pro to provide a tangible representation of his presence among his people. And so before the construction of the temple... Um, we, you see in the Bible this thing called the tabernacle. And so the tabernacle served as this mobile place of worship during the Israelites' journey in the wilderness. And so in the Old Testament and until the times of the New Testament, the Israelites, they could come before God. They could receive forgiveness for their sins through this sacrificial system. And often that we look at it and it's confusing, it's overwhelming. You're like, oh, man, it may not make sense. And so we see that both this idea of the tabernacle or tent and the temple represented, that's all tabernacle means, it's a tent. So this fancy word for tent, again, that both this tabernacle and the temple represented the truth that God dwelt, that he lived, that he abode among his people, fulfilling the promises that he made to them. And so aren't we all longing for a dwelling place? I mean, are we all trying to find home, that, that place where we can just find rest and just be? It's the saying that I just want to be, do me, right? Do me is like, I'm tired and I need help and I want to rest. I'm worn out. You see, finding a home or a dwelling place can be hard and super difficult and super frustrating. And so remember that the ideas of a dwelling or a resting place and the temple, tabernacle, it's all the same biblical idea and used synonymous um, oftentimes. And in our context today, it will be synonymous. And so finding your temple, if I could say it that way, can be difficult. And so think of me, think with me, and I want you to think, what is your dwelling place? Where do you find rest? What is your temple? Again, think with me. What is your dwelling place? What is your place of rest? What covers you like a tent, like, a, like the word tabernacle, and, and gives you comfort? As we come together this Easter, I, I don't know where you are. I don't know where you've been. I'm not sure how you feel this morning or what you're actually looking for. But I know all humans are searching for home. And, and, and they're searching for a true home. We find it in a bunch of other weird things and places and sins and idolatry. But we're all searching for a true home, a true place to be and dwell and find rest. And maybe that's you this Easter. 
And, and you actually need to know more about this true temple. And so our, our text has the answers today. And so let's read in John 2, 13 through 22. Again, um, we're going to see in John 2, 13 through 22 um, that the answers are in our text today. So open with me. If you have your device, follow with me. And keep your eyes and ears and heart in the text, and let's ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us today. John 2, starting in verse 13. It says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple, and he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he, Jesus, drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away and do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. And so again, from John 2, 13 through 22, and the power of the Holy Spirit, we will learn that the true temple had a purpose to demonstrate God's standard of holiness, to declare the gospel and, and produce true belief. And so based on that statement, we're going to see three main points, that the true temple, from verses 13 through 17, that the true temple had a purpose. It wasn't just this weird thing they did back in the day. <laughs> it had a purpose. The true, and then two, we're going to see, secondly, that the true temple declares the gospel. From verses 18 through 21, and then our last verse in verse 22, we're going to see that the true temple produces true belief. And so, again, as a church, we have been immersing ourselves in the gospel of John, where we have encountered Jesus, the unique, John says, the one and only son of God. And the Apostle John, through the revelation of the Word of God, reveals to us that, that Jesus is this logos, this word in Greek that means word, the word. <laughs> Jesus is this logos. He's the very reason or foundation behind all things. He's the reason behind the logic. So in chapter 1, we see John the Baptist and the Apostle John point us to believe in Jesus. And this is the main message of the Gospel of John. That just as John expressed in John 20, 30 through 31, declaring that everything that is written in this gospel is to lead us to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing that we may have life, John says, eternal life in his name. And so today, uh, we're going to enhance the ideas, uh, those ideas as we investigate the idea of the true temple. So let's look at our first point from verses 13 through 17 of our text today, which is that the true temple had a purpose. Again, from verses 13 through 17. Look at verse 13 with me in chapter 2. It says, 
The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And so in John 2.13, we see Jesus going up to Jerusalem, literally going up like high elevation-wise, and it says, for this Passover feast. And so this Passover feast was a significant event for the Jews that commemorated their, their salvation or their liberation or their rescue from slavery in Egypt. And Jesus' presence at this feast highlights his Jewish identity and his participation in Jewish customs and traditions. And so it sets the stage, y'all, for his ultimate sacrifice as this Passover lamb whose blood was put on the doorpost that would save. We see that, but it's a, in the Old Testament, it's a picture of what Christ would do. This deliverer, it's what his name means, Yeshua, deliverer, liberator, rescuer, redeemer. It's all the same idea that he would save or Joshua or Jesus, his people, from, eter- from eternal slavery um, uh, of sin. And so as we celebrate Easter, which in Latin-based languages, if you're a, any, we have Spanish speakers here, is called La Pascua, okay, which is coming from the Hebrew word with a similar pronunciation. And so we are reminded of the connection between, we don't really see that in English because it loses that translation, between the Passover and the resurrection. We take our English word, some people say it's associated with some goddesses and spring goddesses, uh, like Ishtar and stuff like that. But actually, if you know German, which I speak a little bit of German, Easter is that word in German, Osten, has this like Eastern, like East, okay? And then also in German, you say Alphestein, which means resurrection. So it's if you slow it down, Alphestein, okay? It's in there. Or, or Alphestein, Alphestein means resurrection. So our word Easter, a lot of people have some debate on this. It just means resurrection. So you don't have to be scared. If that bothers your conscience to say, we don't care. We say Easter Sunday, remembering English is what kind of language? Germanic language. So we get our root from that. So we can say Easter and not be scared. We're not talking about Easter bunnies and spring goddesses. We're talking about the resurrection, okay? So the resurrection. So just as the Passover, um, Again, celebrated the liberation of the Jews from slavery. Easter celebrates our liberation from sin and death through Christ's resurrection. So as we celebrate Pasqua or Easter, let us remember that we're celebrating the ultimate Passover. The one that leads us from death to life. So let's keep looking at our text in verses 14 through 16. It says, in the temple. And this part's like, whoa, Jesus, Jesus did something interesting here, right? Check it out. Verse 14 through 16. In the temple, he, Jesus, found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And what did Jesus do? Look at what Jesus did. He made a whip of cords and he drove them all out of the temple. He started, get out of here. And it says, with the sheep and the oxen, he's like, get out of here with these animals. Get out. And he poured over the, the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. So that's what Jesus did. Get out of here. That doesn't seem very Jesus-like, right? Get out of here. What is he doing? What is He's taking out these. What is he doing? The world doesn't like this version of Jesus. And most of us are scared to abide in the spirit and, and, and abide in such a way that when the holiness of God is attacked, we're not cowards. This doesn't mean to be a jerk. Or an idiot or a dummy. Was Jesus doing that there? He was not. Let's keep reading. But it's still interesting though, right? 
He poured out the coins of the money changers. He overturned their tables, and he told those who sold the pigeons they were selling stuff to take these things away. Don't make my father's house a house of trade. You see, Jesus was angry at how the people were acting in the temple. They were using the temple the wrong way and not using the temple for its proper purpose. This was wrong and sinful and not proper in the eyes of God. They were using the temple as a money-making machine and were disregarding God's standards. And so Jesus uses direct words, right? He's not like, well, maybe, guys, if you could... Could you please take the money out? Does he talk like that? No. He's kind of direct, right? He takes a whip. He overturns tables here with righteous anger. We too, like Jesus, can have righteous anger. When someone does something evil to us, a friend, a family member, or a child, what does that do in your soul? You're just going to let someone slap your mama? No, I'm not. You're going to get mad. There's going to be righteous anger. Okay, but let's listen to Ephesians 4.26. It says this. You see, it's, we're going to learn that anger is not always a sin. It can lead there quickly. Okay, it gets us there quickly, but righteous anger is not sinful. Look at Ephesians 4.26-27. says, be angry. The Bible commands you to be angry and, and not sin. But it says, do not let the sun go down. Don't let a day pass on your anger. Resolve it quickly, because what is anger that keeps festering? It might be righteous, and then it becomes bitterness and judgment, oh, and rage, right? So anger is not bad, right? Well, what's the na- if we were playing uh, lacrosse with the kids yesterday, right, and me and Candace and some of us were playing out there. And um, in real sports, like in basketball, my, I, the, the most godly men that I've met, when they play basketball, oh, my goodness. I'm like, they get so angry, they think they're Michael Jordan. Me, one of them, too. I used to. Okay? I used to be, like, proud and be like, watch out, man. You fouled me or, like, all this stuff, right? And this anger quickly comes out. Okay? So be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil is what Ephesians says. Again, anger is not sinful. Too much anger, too much, without abiding in Jesus gets out of hand. So you see, the English word that we have an English word for this is actually good. It's called indignation, which means righteous anger. And this is what Jesus displays here in our text today. You see, many people use Jesus' example of overturning tables and using a whip or a text like Ephesians 4, 26 or 27 or our text today to abuse the use of anger or to justify their anger all the time. So we're not advocating that, right? Well, Jesus was angry. So Jesus did this like 5% of the time, probably. He sometimes said, you brood of vipers. He called people out. He said some direct things. But he does that like 95% of the time. He's taking the other cheek. He's calm. Right? When conflict happens, Jesus is generally composed and calm. And I think he's still composed here, but there's a line, and that's what abiding in Jesus means. We, if we're abiding in the Spirit, again, I think it's 95-5, right? But there's something here to learn from Jesus, to not be a coward, to not be ashamed, to know God's standard for holiness, to know that the true temple, as point one says, the true temple had a purpose. And the purpose was what? To demonstrate God's standard of purity and holiness. That is why Jesus acts zealously with a Z or angry here because God is holy and and, and knows that, that, that he must take a stand. You see, God is the most holy and awesome 
a being that we, can, we can't even comprehend without Jesus. He demands holiness and perfection. And this is why God's holiness, again, is this essence of his being that sets him apart. That's why we, it, it, we struggle to understand his holiness because we can't in of our own. We're broken. And, and his holiness sets him apart as utterly pure without any hint of moral corruption. It's the attribute that defines his perfection and majesty, as we just sang. And it's something that is utterly beyond human comprehension. His holiness is tied to his purity. And he is absolutely unstained by sin. And he's completely set apart from anything that is impure or defiled. We think demons and Satan is scary, scare, are scary. The demons tremble when they think of God's name. He's awesome. The old King James would say he's terrible. That just means he's like, he's bad, he's awesome, he's big, he's strong. Okay? That's the God of the Bible. Now, he's also other things, too. He's not just that. Okay? But that's the part of the, of the holiness and purity of God that we forget. He's holy, and it's tied, again, to his purity. He's absolutely unstained by sin, sin completely set apart from anything that is impure, defiled. If we really saw God without Jesus as the mediator, we'd just explode. We couldn't comprehend him. But it's this purity that makes him the ultimate standard of righteousness and the only one who is truly deserving of worship and honor. God's holiness is so powerful and so awe-inspiring that even the angels in heaven, we're going to sing this uh, for our first response song, they, they cover their faces and they cry, holy, holy, holy. I bet it's a beautiful song. That's all they say, holy, holy, holy in Isaiah 6.3. And so as we come to know and worship this holy God, we are called to strive for purity in our own lives, recognizing that it is only through Christ's sacrifice that we can be made pure and holy in the sight. But what does Jesus encounter? That's the standard of the temple, right? The temple had a purpose to demonstrate God's uh, holiness and purity. But the people Jesus en encounters were abusing the purpose of the temple. The people didn't care about God's purity or, or his holiness. They were selfish and small-minded and only cared about their pocketbooks and their bottom line. Honestly, this sounds much like our culture today. You see, they did not see the true purpose of the temple like point one tells us. But Jesus, who was God, knew that his own godly standard of perfection was what the temple was supposed to represent. But the temple Jesus encountered that day looked nothing like the true temple that God had designed. And so we see Jesus' passion or his zeal come to life. This, this passion, which is also associated with Easter you see, history calls Jesus' journey to the cross from the triumphal entry to his death as his passion. And so we see some of that passion that Jesus has today. So let's continue looking at our text in verse 17 and learn more of Jesus' zeal or his passion. Verse 17 says, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And so here we see Jesus' zeal as it demonstrates God's standard of purity and holiness. We see Jesus' passion. Again, in English, translated as zeal. The, the pa this passion or zeal. Um, in Hebrew, there's not a word for zeal or, or jealousy. There's just one word uh, called this, this jealousy. It's like this fiery, hot 
It means fiery hot. It's kind of what it has to do. But this word is the Old Testament word Hebrew. really has this idea when God is jealous, he's holy. It's this holy jealousy. But God's jealousy is not like evil human jealousy. You see, he has zeal. As Psalm 69.9 says, For zeal for your house has consumed me. John was quoting this. God, like a good husband, has holy jealousy because like a good marriage, he wants purity in his relationships with his people. You see, God's house was, a, was the temple. That's what Psalm 69.9 means here when it says, for zeal, uh, uh, for zeal for your house or temple or dwelling place has consumed me. He has a zeal for the presence of God and the purity of God and the holiness of God. So a lot of people wrongly think a church building today is the house of God. That's not true. It's just a place. The people are the church, okay? That's that idea that, that, that uh, this place or of any building is a temple is wrong. The house of God represents God's dwelling place with humanity, God's tabernacle or tent or God as the idea of the temple. That God was present with his people. This is an allusion to the garden. Because the temple sacrificial system of the Old Testament was pointing us to the gospel. The good news of Jesus, as our second point says today, the true temple declares the gospel. Like it actually proclaims and declares the gospel. Look at verses 18 with me. They say, it says, the Jews said to him, now the Jews are like, what are you talking about, man? What sign do you show us for these things? And what does Jesus say? What does Jesus do? Jesus, again, was initially questioned here by the Jews. They were like, they, they, they wanted him to prove or justify his actions. They wanted like, man, who, who do you think you are using your zeal or, or strong word? Who, who are you to talk to me like that? That's what they were saying. Who's this guy think he is? Using a, a whip of cords and overturning tables? And what does Jesus do? He declares the gospel. See, his righteous anger declares the gospel. Jesus' statement declares the gospel. The text in verses 19 and 20 say, say, Jesus then answered them. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said they're confused. The disciples probably were too. It's, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up? You poor man from Galilee, which was not like a cool place. He was from a small town. Jesus was a common name. It's just like Joshua. Or, you know, just a normal name. But Jesus gives the gospel. He, he proclaims his death, his burial, his resurrection, which we then see produce true belief. He calls out the people at the temple saying this little gospel phrase that only he could declare. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And Jesus was perfect. They probably thought he was cocky. They probably thought he was all kinds of things. They spit on him. They made fun of him. Because as we celebrate Easter today, Jesus knew that his death, burial, and resurrection were the linchpin that would Fulfill the good news, the gospel story of God dwelling, tabernacling, or being the temple with his people. You see, Jesus knew 
that what the evil the people were doing in the temple in our text today, it could not stop him. It could not stop him as God, and it could not stop the gospel from going forth. Because as our second point states today, the true temple declares the gospel. It's just what Jesus does. And so in this statement of raising the temple, Jesus connects the whole purpose of everything, of every single point in time from the beginning of creation until the end. Let's look at verse 21. Verse 21, it says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. Huh. You see, Jesus is the true temple. Jesus is the true temple. Surprise, right? Kind of obvious on Easter. His passion as the God-man, the mediator between God and man, meant that his body would have to be put to death. This meant that Jesus, as the God-man, was going to die. You see, our triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, were at the beginning of creation where everything was made in the image of God, and God said everything was good, but then man wanted to be like God and sinned and disobeyed by sinning and doing the one thing God said not to do, to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But Adam and Eve, our ancestors, failed and sinned just like you and I would have because they were deceived by the serpent, Satan, to think they could be like God. God allowed them to now know what evil and good was. And man was so weak in themselves that they could not defeat evil. We could not defeat evil, but we would need one, a, a Joshua, a Yeshua, a Redeemer, a, a Deliverer. We would need one, this Christ, this Messiah who the Jews were looking for, this God-man to cover, to atone for humanity's sins. And this atonement demanded that a man who was the Messiah and who was also God, it demanded uh, this God-man to be the sacrifice who could cover our sins. And so the Father sent Jesus, the Son, who was God, but was also man. And as this perfect little baby who lived a perfect life as a man, he was a 3-year-old, a 5-year-old, a 21-year-old, a 27-year-old. He was the only one in all of history to ever be perfect. Known as Christ, the Messiah, who was known as Jesus of Nazareth from Galilee. His brothers and sisters are like, man, come on, Jesus, he ain't perfect. They didn't see it. They were like, he's kind of weird. They probably didn't, they didn't see it. Nobody thought he was special. He was actually perfect. <laughs> and they couldn't recognize it. We would have missed it too. We'd have been like, oh my gosh, Jesus is so annoying. He never does anything wrong. And we would have blamed him for stuff if we were his siblings. We would have been like, come on, mom, Mary, Jesus did that. We would have done it. We would have all done it. We wouldn't have seen his perfection. This Messiah, known as the Son of Man or the Son of God, as John says, was this creator God who then had to redeem the broken world. Jesus was to be our redeemer, our deliverer, who is our rescue, our salvation from the brokenness we inherited, this sin that lingers in our lives and in this humanity that we have. It leeches to our soul, to the soul of our hearts and sucking the life out of us and conquering us and leaving us for dead. That's what Jesus was zealous for, purity, holiness. 
Day after day, the sin, the sin haunts us and leeches to our soul. You see, Jesus had to take on that sin that festers and multiplies in our wretched hearts. This perfect God-man who was born of a virgin lived a perfect life and was betrayed by his own friend with a kiss. He was then taken to, to, to die on this journey, uh, to die on a Roman cross, this instrument of execution, this electric chair, this lethal injection, this guillotine in the old French days. He was taken to that. The cross wasn't a pretty thing. And after these leaders mocked him, and Barabbas, this guilty prisoner, was chosen over Jesus to be freed, and Jesus' own people then cried, crucify him, crucify him. He was beaten bloody with a whip that had these shards of glass or bone, and they would go into his back, and they would rip, and then he would be, he was, his body was, was cut and bloody, and he was marred, his face, they couldn't even, couldn't even recognize his face. And he carried his cross, and then he was so tired that a man named Simon had to come carry it for him. And they put a crown of thorns on his head and mocked him in three languages, in Greek, in Latin, in Hebrew, on the sign. It said, King of Kings. And they wanted to change it, and, 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 and Pilate was like, no, leave it. And so the gospel was proclaimed there, King of Kings. They wanted to put, he thinks he's the King of Kings. But the sign stood in three languages. He's the God of the nations. And then on the floor, Jesus' body was nailed to the cross with these huge nails were put either here or here. And they would put them in his hands and so that he, that the, that he would hang and it wouldn't just rip out. And so his bone was, was hanging there on the cross on his hand and wrist and his feet then as his hands were nailed and his feet were put together and he was nailed. And they probably threw him on the floor and flipped him over. Imagine that hanging of bone and flesh just tearing and then it would lift up that cross, and there was like a hole, and they would put it, and he'd just hang. Just feel the physical pain that Jesus had. But Jesus went to the cross and bore more than physical pain. Those who passed by would deride him, the, the, the scriptures say, wagging their heads and like saying, who, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Jesus yourself. He says, if you are the son of God, come down. This is what they said to Jesus. Come down from the cross. And so all the chief priests with the scribes and the elders, these religious leaders, they mocked him saying, he saved others, yet he cannot save himself. They're like, come on, man. He's the king of Israel, that guy. Let him come down from the cross now, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, right? That's what they said. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. If, if, God, if, if God really cares about Jesus, for he, Jesus said, I'm the son of God. That's, what, that's how they mocked him, this perfect man. And as Jesus was dying, this is, just how, this is very Jesus of him, he still ministered to the two guys on the cross. And Jesus said to one of them, you will be with me in paradise today because God opened his eyes. And so as Jesus was dying from noon to about 3 p.m., it was just utter, complete darkness in the land. And Jesus cried out, Psalm 21:1, saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which means that the human part of Jesus, who was God, took on the full cup. This is a, like an Old Testament idea 
of the wrath of God, the anger of God, the holy anger of God that Jesus is demonstrating at the temple. He took on that anger and God poured it onto his son because of our grotesque sin. As, as 2 Corinthians, you don't believe me, maybe? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, because our disgusting sin, it says, He made him, God the Father made him the Son to be sin. What? That's what it means to take on the wrath of God. And only this perfect God-man could take on that and feel forsaken for, for by God. He said before he would pray, take this away. Take this, this, this wrath, this cup, this burden away. Again, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, God the Father made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him... We, his children, his sons and daughters, might become the righteousness or the justice of God. That's who you are if you know him. That's who you are. If you don't know him, that's who you can be to live that way, to live free. And then Jesus, breathing, he would have to breathe, and he, he had this little post on his feet, and he would lift himself up and, oh, and go down, and then the, and the nails would be hanging, and then right before Jesus died, he says, Father, into your hands I com com commit my spirit. Jesus had authority. <laughs> he gives his spirit to the Father, and he said, it is finished. Famous Easter words, right? It is finished. Another translation, it is accomplished. It's done. It's complete. This was a specific Greek word that had to do with completeness. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I didn't come to, to destroy everything that was in the Old Testament. No, I came to fulfill it. He said, it is finished, which indicates that he consumed the cup of God's wrath through his sacrifice. He became the bridge, the mediator between God and man. And now the true temple was destroyed. And the veil, the Bible says, in the temple, this big, thick curtain was torn it protected the holy of holies where God's presence was, was supposed to be. That's what the Jews thought. That was like the tabernacle in, in the ark. And so as the gospel of John states in the first chapter saying, and the word became flesh and he dwelt, literally, he tabernacled, he templed uh, with his people. He dwelt, he lived, he pitched his tent. That's actually a really better translation. He pitched his tent among his people. And as the, the torn veil shows, the old temple was no longer needed. But rather, Jesus, the true temple, was now known to be here dwelling with his people. As Christmas reminds us, right? God with us, Emmanuel. But then the scriptures state, Friday, all of Saturday, and Sunday hit. And the Bible says he was risen, that he is risen, and that is the truth, that he actually came back to life because as Jesus, as the true temple, he cannot not declare the gospel. He has to declare the gospel as our third point uh, teaches us that the true temple, and if you know him, or better said, if he knows you, produces true belief. So let's look at our final verse in verse 22 today, which says, When therefore he, Jesus, was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered 
that he had said this. And they believed. It's John's main point, and he's hammering on it again. They believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Literally, the logos that Jesus had spoken. Again, our third point is that Jesus, the true temple, if you know him, or better yet, if he knows you, produces true belief in his disciples, his babies, his sons and daughters. Jesus' resurrection made this story of Jesus saying that the the true temple would be destroyed and raised up a a reality that that actually took place in the disciples' minds, kind of like a flashback in a movie. They're like, oh, you see that scene? And they're like, oh, oh, I get it. When when they finally see and and everything made total sense. You see, the disciples were probably confused by Jesus' saying as well. They're like thinking, oh, yeah, he's going to rebuild the temple. Watch out. He's going to come like He-Man or Hercules and come with guns blazing. And maybe he's just going to have these muscles and and he's going to build a temple. He's going to be an army. We're going to build a temple. That's what they thought. But that's not what Jesus did. They thought he would physically rebuild the temple. But then we see that they remembered the story after the resurrection, which is the power to save in Jesus. They believed correctly that he did resurrect the temple. This proves Jesus as God. As John later says in John 11, 25, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. So throughout history, the theme of God's glory dwelling among his people has been a constant thread from David's son, Solomon, constructing the first temple to Ezra and Nehemiah and everybody involved rebuilding it. Jesus is the one who makes it possible for God to dwell among us. And through him, we have actual access to the Father. The book of Revelation gives us a glimpse of the new Jerusalem. Where the temple is, where there is no temple, huh? For Jesus himself is the temple. This symbolism points to the truth that God's desire is to dwell with his people, to have an intimate and eternal communion with them. And and this desire has been fully realized through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so let's rejoice in the truth that we I have access to the Father through Jesus and that he made it possible for us to dwell in his presence forever as the true temple. And, and this ultimate paradise is not just a place, the idea of eternal life or, or the, the Bible says, but knowing God, knowing the true temple is not just a place, it's a person. It's a relationship with God through his son Jesus, through the Holy Spirit's power. So let's live in the reality of this truth and be transformed by it and believe knowing that we are forever loved and accepted by the one who created us if we have the true belief that God gives. You can't produce that on your own. God has to give it to you. So Jesus, as the true temple, calls us to truly believe him through the gospel story. And specifically, as we celebrate Easter today, and the idea that Jesus is the true temple, as he says, remember, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And so Jesus, as the the temple today, gives us eternal hope that he will eternally be the true temple. Listen to what John says in Revelation 20 through 27. He says, and I saw no temple in the city. 
For its temple is the Lord, the, the, the Almighty, the Lamb. That means Jesus, by the way. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. He says, by its light will the nations walk. God is the God of the nations. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there, and they will bring into it, all these nations, the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So, do you believe? Do you really believe in Jesus, the true temple, or are you unclean and detestable and hopeless in your sin? Or, has a life and death and burial and resurrection made you new. And you know this. Do you know that he's atoned for your sin? So that you can be justified and made new in Christ to live this life growing in holiness and hoping in Christ to one day when we die or he comes back to reign with him in glory. That's who you are if you're his sons and daughters. You see, Jesus came to clean you and give you life through his resurrection power. So do you have this true belief? The, oh, the, again, does the te true temple Jesus actually live in you today? Do you believe in the resurrection and the life who is Jesus, the true temple? My encouragement is if you don't, believe in him today for the first time. Or if you do, as the Bible reminds us, keep believing. Keep believing and know the comfort and hope in the resurrection of Jesus as the true temple now and forever. Remember, we're all longing for a dwelling place. And so what's your dwelling place? What tent? What is your tent or your tabernacle? What is your temple? Or better said, who is your temple? Do you believe Jesus the true temple today? I encourage you, and for those of us who do, let's believe the resurrected Christ today, who is Jesus, the true temple, who demonstrates God's standard of purity and holiness, we can't forget, and who declares, like we should, the gospel with his life, death, burial, and resurrection, and his ascension, which actually produce, produces true belief in his disciples, his children. Let's pray to live this way. Dear Lord, we come to you now. And we know that your true temple had a purpose or that it was to display and to reveal who you are for us as humanity, Lord. So as we come, Lord, not bound by the brokenness of our sin, Lord, but as our first point taught us that you are holy and that you are this holy, awesome, wonderful God. And without your son, there's no way that we can comprehend that. There's no way, and Lord, so we ask now for you just to reveal yourself more and more to us. Maybe for some of those here today, for the first time, maybe you've been in church your whole life, and you said a prayer when you were a kid, or you did this thing or that thing, but you don't believe. Lord, I pray that you teach us belief, and let us sing about your holiness, 
and, and come to you. And those of us who know you, Lord, just teach us now to love you more and more and more. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Oh, you know, man, oh, you know, man, oh, you know, man.